So he has risen. All right, yeah, that's what I like to do. Last year, Jen mentioned last year, last year we did that and everybody had to honk, right? So let's try that again because I really like that. He has risen. Oh, yeah, that's awesome, isn't it? He has risen indeed. But did he really rise? There are some secular scholars today that will try to convince us that the resurrection never really happened. And in fact, the most extreme secular scholars will try to convince us that Jesus didn't even exist. Now, your most well-known secular scholars say, stop saying that, that makes us look foolish. And they recognize Jesus existed. But they, but they question his resurrection. In fact, the most well-known uh, secular scholar, in fact, probably the, the uh, foremost secular scholar's name is Bart Ehrman. He works as a professor at the University of Northern Carolina, Chapel Hill. And he recognizes that Jesus existed. And he even recognizes that there's no way the church could exist without at least the belief in the resurrection. And it makes me think of Gamaliel. Uh, Gamaliel was a Pharisee around the time of the early church, and the church was growing and growing, and he was well respected by the Sanhedrin and by all of the people, and they're, they're having this debate of, what should we do with this church? What should we do with these people that are Christ followers? In fact, they didn't even have the term church at the time. They didn't even have the term Christian at the time. They were just people of the way. And so Gamaliel's sitting there, and they're arguing about this, and Gamaliel says, just stop. There were other people that claimed to be Messiah before this Jesus showed on the scene. And these other people were killed. And what happened to their followers? They all fell apart because it was not of God. And that's typically what happens when we see a movement and then the leader of the movement is killed. It eventually falls apart. So Gamaliel says, don't do anything. If it's of God, or if it's not of God, it will fall apart. If it is of God, then if you persecute him, you're persecuting the very thing God's doing. So just don't do anything. And they took that advice. At least some of them did. So Bart Ehrman is struggling with something that Gamaliel struggled with. If it's of God, then it just continues to go, right? And what he struggles with is this idea. How on earth did Christianity continue to flourish? And not only just continue to flourish, but it flips the world upside down. And it grows in the midst of persecution, and people continue to believe. To this day, why on earth did a poor Second Temple Jew start something that lasts to this day? It just, you just can't explain it without the resurrection. The resurrection is what our faith hinges on. Everything hinges on the resurrection. With no resurrection, Paul says that we are of all people the most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, then what we're doing here today is foolishness. It all hinges on the resurrection. Bar Ehrman recognizes that, and so what he says is, well, they must have just hallucinated. They had to have believed. And, and 
you know, people will die for something they believe in, something they believe to be true. No one will die for what they know is false. The apostles and over 500 people said they saw a resurrected Christ. And they were willing to die for what they said they saw. So Bart Ehrman recognizes this and he says, well, they had to have at least believed that they saw a resurrected Christ. So they must have all hallucinated. And that's the claim. And since this is what it all hinges on, that's what we're going to study today. Turn with me to Mark 16. We've been walking through Mark 16. We've been doing this series, He is Greater Than, meaning Jesus is greater than everything. And this is the, the main theme throughout the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel according to Mark, is Jesus is greater than. Jesus is greater than wealth. Jesus is greater than power, than influence. Jesus is greater than comfort. Jesus is even greater than your idea of Jesus. Because we all paint this picture of who Jesus is, right? We all have this idea of who Jesus is. Whatever your idea of Jesus is, he's greater than that. It should blow your mind. Jesus is greater than. So we've been walking through this, and we went through the three-and-a-half-year ministry, and, and Mark, through those three-and-a-half years, shows us that Jesus is greater than. And then we got into Holy Week, and we saw that Jesus is greater than. And even in his humiliation, what we studied on Friday night, that Jesus didn't just die, but as he died, he was humiliated. He was mocked by man. And even in that, he was still greater than. And we catch up to Sunday. And I want to actually start off at chapter 15, verse 47, because I think it is important. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now, Mark throws that in there to let us know that they knew exactly where Jesus was buried. It wasn't like they went to the wrong tomb or something. They knew exactly where Jesus was buried. So then, we've got, that was Friday. We've got Friday night. Now remember, for the Jew, the day started at sundown. So for us, it's Friday night. For them, it's Saturday. And he stays buried Saturday. Some of the chief priests want to set up a guard to make sure nothing happens. They go to Pilate. He approves it. They set up a guard. It's important for us to recognize that these guards, if, if they didn't fulfill their duty of protecting the tomb, they could be killed. Their sentence would be death. So they wanted to protect it literally with their life. Then we've got Saturday night which for the Second Temple Jew is starts on or starts their Sunday. And then we've got Sunday morning. And that's where we catch up. When the Sabbath was passed, we know it's Sunday morning because the Sabbath was passed. Sabbath for the Second Temple Jew was Saturday. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So we know what time of day it is. We know what day it is. We know what time of day it is. It's very early in the morning. Now, why were they going to the tomb? Because Jesus died on Friday. Sabbath starts at sundown. So they knew they needed to get him in the tomb before sundown, but they didn't have enough time to give him the proper dressing. So 
what these ladies want to do is they want to go back with oils and they want to prepare his body for burial. This was important because in Second Temple Judaism, you had three days to do this. On the fourth day, the tomb would be sealed and they didn't want to open it because the body would start to stink. If you remember back to Lazarus, it's the fourth day. They say, no, don't open that tomb. It's going to stink. And Jesus says, open it anyways. So that's what's going on. They want to dress his body for burial. And they have to do it that day because after that day, the tomb will be sealed. So they go to the tomb. And if we uh, pick up on a couple things here, we see that these ladies were not expecting a resurrection. These ladies were not expecting an empty tomb. And we know that because they bought spices so that they could go anoint him. So they're expecting a dead body in this tomb. And not only are they expecting a dead body, but on their way, they realize that they've run into a problem. And that problem is they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So they recognize that the stone is too heavy for them. There's no way they'll be able to remove the stone how on earth are we going to get to Jesus so that we can dress his body for burial? Notice, it's so important for us to get this. They did not expect an empty tomb. None of the disciples expected a resurrected Jesus. I think that's important because it helps us understand that this could not have been a hallucination. They didn't hallucinate Jesus. They expected a body. They didn't hallucinate an empty tomb, and they didn't go to the wrong tomb. They went to the right tomb, but there was no Jesus. And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Now, Mark emphasizes how large it is because he wants to emphasize that this is a supernatural event. It wasn't just rolled away by some random person. It wasn't that the wind blew it over. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. Now, this young man is going to be described as an angel. Uh, so he's dressed in a white robe. That's, that lets us know that this was an angel. It wasn't just a young man. And they were alarmed. Now, why were they alarmed? Because they did not expect an empty tomb. They didn't expect the stone to be rolled away. They didn't expect an empty tomb. They were going there to dress Jesus for burial. They expected a dead body, and when they got there, there was no dead body. That was alarming to them. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, this seems right. This is what we expected. It was a shock to them. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And so this angel recognizes their shock. He recognizes why they're in shock, and he needs to address this. First, he lets them know that he was crucified. It wasn't that you were mistaken, and it's not that the readers are mistaken. And there was a claim that started infiltrating the church in the early church that said that Jesus never actually died. And some even claim that Jesus never had a physical body. And what Mark's doing here is he's refuting that claim even. That there was a physical body. And Jesus did die a physical death. Even how he says, see the place where they laid him, is showing us that the crucifixion the death was real. 
just as the resurrection is real. Because where he should be, where they should have found the dead body, there was none. He has risen. And then he gives them a command. But go, tell his disciples. Go and tell. The first commission of spreading the gospel, the good news, is to ladies. Ladies, you were given the first commission to go and tell. Now this is also some evidence for the authenticity of the gospel. Because in those days, women were thought of as second-class citizens. Women were also thought of as really bad witnesses. So if you were going to make up a story, you wouldn't start it with, and the women were right. But that's how they started. And it only shows the authenticity of what's happening here. That Mark isn't fabricating, that the apostles didn't fabricate. By the way, if you were to fabricate something, would you make yourself look like a fool? Hey, this guy Jesus that I used to follow and I never believed him, he rose from the dead after he was crucified, and I still didn't believe that. No, you'd probably put yourself up higher, right? You'd be like, hey guys, I was like Jesus' number one apostle, and he died and he rose again, and I knew it the whole time. I knew it was going to happen. Trust me on this. I knew it. The, you wouldn't make yourself out to look like an idiot. And yet, the apostles, and especially in Mark, continue to look like they were ignorant of what was happening. Because they were. And it only argues for the authenticity. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So they show up to this empty tomb that they weren't expecting. They're in shock because they expected to see a dead body. And what do they find instead? An angel giving them instruction to go and tell. And what's their reaction? Trembling. This word trembling means that they were actually shaking from their uh, from their uh, excitement. And astonishment. This word astonishment means that they had confused awe. They were just, have you ever been dumbfounded by something? Like, what? Wait, what I, I, what's going on here? I, I'm not... And it's like your brain is trying to process the information. That's what's going on to these ladies. They're shaking because, they're, because they just don't know what's going on. They expected to see a dead body. They don't see a dead body. And now they're kind of this confused, all like, I have no clue what's really going on. And they left, and this, they said nothing means that they, as they were traveling back to the rest of the apostles, they weren't going around saying, hey, he's risen, hey, he's risen. But they, they were going back to connect with those that they were closest with to tell them what had just happened in hopes that they could process through, right? And they were afraid. And we're not quite sure what they're afraid of other than we know that they are afraid because something that they never expected to happen has now happened. And now we need to just take a time out and talk about the ending of Mark. So the ending of Mark uh, is a little bit debated. So some would say we can go. Yeah, we go. Some would say that uh, verses nine through twenty 
are a part of the original document. Other ones would say that this is a scribal edition uh, and somehow a, a, uh, either the, the real ending got lost or this is how Mark decided to end it and a scribe somewhere along the way was confused about the ending and so he added this scribal edition. That's kind of the debate and I want to talk through this debate. I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm not going to tell you what to believe. Uh, but I will give you a little bit of the debate and then we'll carry on. So, uh, if we go, the, the long ending is original. Some of the arguments for the long ending is original kind of go like this. One is the majority of the later manuscripts have the long ending. In fact, the, ma the vast majority of manuscripts have verses 9 through 20. Now, before we even continue on, I think it is important to say that some people would take this and they'd say, well, see, we can't trust Scripture. You don't even know if these 11 verses are authentic or not. And what I would say is the exact opposite. Because there is such heated debate around these last 11 verses, it helps us know that scholars and biblical scholars and believers take Scripture seriously. We don't just buy everything hook, line, and sinker, but we dive into, and we all as believers should dive into these debates, and we should examine it. And the more we examine it, the more we can actually be secure in our faith. So the very fact that there's a debate around these last 11 verses help us know that Scripture, that the debate around the authenticity of Scripture is real, and it helps us actually have more trust in our modern-day translations. So I'd like to say that, because I think it really does, and, and the more I read it, the more I study it, I'll be honest with you, I don't know which side I really fall on. But the more I study it, the more I trust it. So, the argument is the majority of later manuscripts include 9 through 20. But that's not the only argument. It's only a handful of manuscripts do not include 9 through 20. Now, the, the opposing argument will be, the, yeah, there's, there's a very small minority that don't include it, but there are our best and our earliest, and that's true. Now, the style argument I almost want to throw out, because both sides will be like, uh, the, the ones that want to include it will say, well, the style really is more marking. And, and the other side will say, nah, the style just doesn't match up. It's totally different. Uh, and we'll get into that when we get to the other side of the argument. But that's, that's kind of the style argument. But here's one thing that I think really is a big piece of evidence for including 9 through 20, and that is it, it was used by the early church fathers. And so we've got Justice Martyr from 100 to 165, uh, and he uses Mark 16.20. He quotes Mark 16.20. Well, if it was a scribal, uh, scribal edition later on, why on earth is Justin Martyr quoting? And not only that, but Justin Martyr was mentored by Polycarp. If you're familiar with Polycarp's name, Polycarp was mentored by John. So John, who wrote the book of John, mentored Polycarp, who mentored Justice Martyr, and he's quoting it. So we've got third generation fairly closely connected to Jesus, and he's quoting it. That's a pretty big piece of evidence there. But we've also got Arrhenius, who quotes it, and then finally, there, there's a couple other early church fathers who quote, I didn't include all the names, but finally I wanted to include Jerome, who was commissioned by the Catholic Church to write the Latin Vulgate. 
Uh, and he includes it, and he includes it because every single manuscript he gets his hands on has verses 9 through 20 on it. So I say there's, there's a lot of really compelling evidence for including verses 9 through 20. But the other side does have an argument, so let's go to the next slide. Let's go to the next slide. All right. Whoa, wait, go back. Oh, there. Oh, sorry. I missed it. I missed it. That's my, my bad. All right. So the long ending is a scribal edition. They were, uh, you're ahead of me. That's what's going on. You're, all right. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> you're paying attention. Better than me. All right. So, uh, so the, the long ending is a scribal edition. Goes like this. The oldest and best manuscripts do not include 9 through 20. So that's their argument. Now, on the other side of it is those early church fathers, their quotes are actually before the oldest and best manuscripts. So, you know, when we piece together scripture, we're not just looking at all the manuscripts, but we're looking at how the early church fathers quoted scripture. So what's really really interesting about this argument is the early church fathers are dated before the earliest manuscripts and they're quoting it. So that kind of says something about that argument. All right. So Eusebius, uh, he was a church historian. Uh, a lot of people highly value his input and he does not include it. So that's one of their big arguments is that Eusebius does not include it. And then one of their big arguments is that the style is not consistent with the rest of Mark. And they would argue that eight words are used uh, that are found nowhere else in Mark. And that is a fairly big argument that all of a sudden Mark's style has changed. Now, you could throw out some other arguments like, uh, well, he might have had to take a little break and then he comes back and he's writing this in haste. In fact, that's one of the arguments that, uh, so the people that believe that it ends in eight, there's a couple different arguments. One is that that's how he meant to finish it. Another one is that he was under persecution and was killed before he could finish it. And another one is that, uh, he that it got lost. Well, if you think about it, he's under persecution, you could change your style pretty quickly when you think you're about to die. Uh, so, so that could be, you know, we could think about style differences, and, and I might just throw that all out altogether. So anyways, you might know where I land on this, but anyways, we'll, we'll continue on. So that's kind of the argument in a nutshell. But the rest of Mark, even if we could throw that out, the rest of Mark is very similar to Matthew and Luke. And so he's going to kind of go through, and he's going to give a summary of different appearances by Jesus, and then he's going to give us a, a, a slight twist on the Great Commission. But what I want to do here is I want to stop, and we're talking about, did the apostles hallucinate? And so I want to go through the resurrection appearances. And so Jesus... The ladies come, they find an empty tomb, they go back to the apostles, they tell the apostles, and we've got two of them that run ahead to go see the empty tomb, because why? Because they don't believe the ladies, all right? So they go run to see the empty tomb themselves, and the ladies kind of follow back, and after the two apostles leave the tomb, Jesus first appears to Mary Magdalene, and then he's going to appear to the other women. And then he'll appear to two disciples traveling to the road to Emmaus, traveling on the road to Emmaus. And I think that's important to highlight because it's on the same day. On the same day, apostles in a different location who haven't been communicating with these ladies. So they don't even know that there's an empty tomb yet. 
and he's appeared to him. And then to Simon Peter, then he's going to appear to the rest of the apostles, excluding Thomas. And we all remember they, they come and they tell Thomas, and he's like, no, 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 you guys didn't see Jesus until I get to put my fingers in his hands and, and, my, and in his wounds. I won't believe. And then Jesus appears and says, go ahead, touch him, touch my wounds, and believe. And then he'll appear again to, all, to seven apostles. And this is one of Jen's favorites because he appears in uh, Galilee and he cooks them breakfast. And then he appears to over 500 disciples and he gives them the Great Commission. And then he appears to James, the brother of Jesus, who on when Jesus was on earth, never believed. In fact, he thought... Jesus was embarrassing the family. He wanted to shut Jesus up. And then he appears to disciples between Jerusalem and Bethany and descends into heaven. And then one last appearance to Paul, who was named Saul, who not only didn't believe, but was an enemy of the church and was building his career on persecuting the church. Now, I highlight all of these because when we think about hallucination, when we think about Bart Ehrman's excuse, and we think about the secular statement that, hey, there's no way this could be, and what Bart Ehrman is famous for his quote is he says, look, I'm a historian, and as a historian, I have to go with the most probable event. And by definition, miracles are the least probable. And I'll agree with them. Miracles are, well, I won't agree with them on that exactly, but miracles are unexplainable sometimes, right? It's something outside of nature impacting nature. So it's not necessarily the least probable, it's just the least easiest to study. But he says, by nature, miracles are the least probable, therefore, we can rule out miracles. And that's why he doesn't believe in a resurrected Jesus. But we look at this, and so he's got to come up with, why can they believe this? Why, why do they turn the world upside down by their belief? And so we look at this, and he comes up with, and let's go back actually just for a second. So we look at this, and he comes up with this idea that they must have just hallucinated, because there's no other possible explanation. But let's look at this hallucination idea. First of all, we see from Mark's account that they weren't expecting a resurrected Jesus. There's no way they thought Jesus had risen from the dead. In fact, when they go back to the disciples, what do the disciples do? No way. You're making this up. And then the disciples tell Thomas, and what does he do? No way. You're making this up. But we see something else, too. We see different people who haven't even communicated now, how likely is that, that the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus would hallucinate a vision of Jesus without even communicating with Mary Magdalene, and they both hallucinate Jesus, a resurrected Jesus? But not only that, but it continues to happen. We see different people at different times in different places hallucinating Jesus, and over 500 people in one event but not only that, but it's people that didn't believe in him as well. So James and Paul both 
not only didn't believe in him, but were against him. They were against him. Why on earth would they hallucinate a resurrected Jesus? And not only that, but they they begin to change their life around the resurrected Jesus. And Paul had everything to lose by following Jesus. He was building his life on persecuting the church. He was building his career. And as he persecuted the church, he rose in ranks. And he knew that following Jesus would make him lose everything. To follow Jesus, he would lose his career. His family would disown him. Everything he held near and dear to his life, he would lose. And yet, he follows Jesus anyway. So what's the point of all this? The point is, there were too many people, some of which were enemies, at too many times, in too many places, for this to be a mass hallucination, or a legend, or a lie. All of the excuses that we see from historians that say this couldn't have happened, the witnesses tell a different story. It's too many people, too many times, too many places for this to be a mass hallucination. The result is that we have to end up believing in a miracle. And that miracle is a resurrected Jesus that he has risen. So now back to our text. Whether you buy into verses 9 through 20 or not, the point is still the same. And the point is, Jesus rose from the dead. The point is, there is an empty tomb that Jesus no longer fills. He rose from the dead, and then Mark gives us more instruction, and he gives us more instruction whether we buy into the 9 through 20 or not. So going back to 7, the instruction is, but go and tell. Look, I have provided you with enough evidence. I have told you the story. You can see clearly that Jesus is greater than, so now what do you do with that? You go and tell. And we can skip down to verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere. And so even if you, even if you include the, the last 11 verses, you can say, what's the point? Jesus is greater than, he's so much greater than anything you can imagine. He's greater than even the image that you have of him in your head. He is greater than, and so what do you do with that information? You go and tell. You go and tell about Jesus. You go and tell about how he has changed our lives. You go and tell about how we are sinners, how we have all rebelled against God at some point in our life. Even if it was a minor rebellion, it was still a rebellion. And a rebellion is any time you think you know better than God. Any time you don't want to do something God's way. You're rebelling against God. You're shaking your fist at him saying, God, I can do it my own. I don't need you. And any time you do that, it's a rebellion against God, and because of that rebellion, we, t we deserve eternal separation. 
Because of that rebellion, we deserve to be eternally separated from God. But because God loves us with such a great love, he came in the flesh and he died on the cross to pay the price so that you don't have to. And you can have a perfect relationship with God. You no longer need someone to mediate for you between you and God. You can now have this perfect relationship with God, and all it takes is for you to put your faith and trust in his works. And to prove it all, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead to give you a chance to put your faith and trust in him. And so what do you do? The reaction is, go and tell. And may we be a people that have been changed by God. We have been changed by the cross and the resurrection. And may we be a people that go and tell. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you inspired Mark to to write down these events. And we thank you that we can trust your word and, and have lively debate about the Word, but always come back to trusting the Word. But most of all, we thank you that you didn't leave us in our rebellion, but you came and you paid the price so that we may live forever with you. And we pray that you would give us someone to share that with. Help us to reach out to those who don't know you, who don't know this good news that they can have perfect relationship with you, and help us to share that, to go and tell. In your name we pray. Amen.